While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. like these are all like this is our this is the opening of seinfeld except it's our podcast i saw the opening (laughs) i saw the opening of season nine where they both had mustaches (laughs) that actually i like that a lot (laughs) what would be the podcast equivalent of us starting a show with mustaches i think we would just have mustaches and talk about them which we're doing right now? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing when I the thing I was thinking about when I brought up the Seinfeld thing is the other day Susanna was talking about putting on her makeup, and she referred to it as putting on her face. Is this a is this yeah. an idiom that yes, you're familiar with? Yes, it's an with? idiom I'm familiar with. My mom has said that many a time. I don't like it that much because it implies that that is her face, and yeah. everything else is just skin parts. Yeah. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Now, it would be different if she was actually putting on her face. And like if like she actually if putting she didn't, on a face like in the Nick Cage film she, Face Off. Yeah, if she was like pulling if she was like Eleanor Rigby like pulling her face out of the jar by the door. You know that that's what he's talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Eleanor Rigby is not a woman in a church with a bunch of jar no, faces. No, she's just she has a skeleton. She's just a skeleton face. That's and then not she true. Has like these ah, slabs of skin. Look at all the zombie people. They are wearing other people's faces. That's not like how it goes. Have you not seen the credits of the movie Face Off? It clearly says based on the song <laughs> Eleanor Rigby by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. <laughs> John Woo is a huge Beals fan. <laughs> yeah, if she was if she was putting if she just walked around, she had like a bone face, usually. Careful. And then she had this <laughs> this slab of flesh that she put on her bone face and that was her face. Like that would be different, but it's just makeup. It's not it's, she's not her face. She has a face. The makeup goes on her face. Yeah, but when they... S- she should say, I'm putting things on my face. <laughs> what are you doing in there? Oh, I'm just putting some junk on my face. <laughs> putting stuff on my face. Putting my face junk on. Yeah, I think, though, for some people, and as as someone who wears glasses, this is okay. Oh, no, it's totally the same thing. Now go on it's, with your story. Well, when <laughs> when someone more. is putting on makeup, and this if this is someone who wears makeup on a daily basis, right, and they're putting on makeup... And they're saying that they're putting on their face. It means that they are putting on like the version of themselves that they are used to looking at. I don't. I get. You know, I told. I do get that. Though the thing about Susanna saying it is that she doesn't usually wear makeup. Which okay, I'm, fair enough. Yeah, she wears it when she's like going out or she wants to feel fancy. Are you missing is, a part where maybe she's saying this ironically? Because that's a thing I think Susanna would do. I think she just picked up. I I don't know. I mean, she's not. Oh, here. I'm putting I can't, on my she, I can't, face. I can't ask her, but I think she just picked the idiom hey, up. Hey, Andrew, I'm putting on my face. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm wiggling my eyebrows. I don't know if that's a thing. Oh, yeah, that, Susanna does that all the time. She's just walking around. She does use her apartment. eyes to be sarcastic. Mm-hmm. When she's and like, she wiggles, being, she wiggles her eyebrows a lot. It's true. It's the thing I know about her. This is a show about books. And sure. Talking, talking about my wife's makeup, <laughs> I guess. Um, every week, one of us reads a book and then tells the other one about it. And we also talk about the author in a way that's kind of educational. <laughs> Craig, <Don't>. what did <laughs> you... What did you... <laughs> you got to be careful about leaning into that angle. We were talking about how proud we are of that, like... So, the soft sell of the edutainment that we do and you can't we just trick come right you and we there. trick you into learning something it's, well i think what we're hopefully at least doing is like 
in saying some facts out loud that hopefully inspires you to go look up the correct facts because we probably got some wrong. Right. I mean, I want to say that we're like a we're in the Bill Nye or the Slim Goodbody neighborhood where you're like learning, but you're having so much fun that you don't realize that you're learning. Yeah, like Oregon Trail. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly. We're the Oregon Trail of podcasts. Here lies Craig Pepperoni and Cheese. Craig, what did you read this week and by who? And tell me more. I read Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton, who was an American writer at the turn of the 20th century. And she's been on my list. Uh, I've had a copy of Age of Innocence on my shelf for a while. But uh, in the interest of time... I definitely needed to read something for the show that I was going to have ready. And mm-hmm. I've been working on this um, book, All the King's Men, and that was just not going to happen in time for the show. So I changed gears. And I'm really glad that I read it because I actually liked Ethan Frome a lot. We'll talk about that later, I suppose. Okay. Uh, did you know, Andrew, that... I did know, Andrew. To her he friends was a nice and guy. family... I We all knew him. He... Pepperoni and... Jeez. He died um, as he lived... <laughs> recording a podcast <laughs> this is a snuff cast if you haven't picked that up <laughs> um to her friends and family edith wharton was known as pussy jones which i think is the name of a bond girl probably <laughs> right she was born oh she was three when the civil war ended what would when was she born then 62 she was born in 1862 and oh, died in that. 1937 look at that yeah uh her parents were george frederick jones and lucretia stevens rhinelander that's a good last name um mm-hmm. i mean and, way better way better than jones yeah, like, I, know. I don't know why <laughs> how would you how would you feel about trading that one in <laughs> you could be rhinelander jones which i think is I mean, now you now you could be. I think you would that's have a to start a name. funk band. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so she, uh, so her last name was Jones, and so they called her Pussy Jones. And apparently, one of the explanations of the phrase "keeping up with the Joneses" mm-hmm. is related to her family, uh, George and his rich buddies. She was born in New York City, and uh, George had made a lot of money and like chemicals or some sort of bank I don't yes know. chemicals i don't know i that's the one like i i realized i wanted to say that fact and then i didn't have it in front of me so good luck everyone but yeah um keeping up with the joneses of course is a, is a thing about paying attention to what everyone else around you is doing and like keeping up with the other people who are perceived to be like your social peers and betters um there there's two there are two explanations for it one is this one and then the second one <laughs> is that it comes from this comic, this like k- kind of super racist comic, comic oh, yeah, that was yeah, published yeah. in like 1913. So I think this, I like this one better. I like this story better. That yeah. a bunch of people on the Hudson River were just building bigger and bigger houses. To keep up with the Joneses. To keep up with the Joneses. Uh, another thing about Wharton's early life was she was three when the Civil War ended, like I said, and then her family went on like a multi-year European tour, which when I first read that, it felt like a victory lap. Like it felt <laughs> okay. like, a, oh yeah, we won. Let's go Europe. Woo! And she stayed over there and got tutors and everything and then apparently got typhoid fever. So that didn't go so great. That sounds fun. <laughs> not, yeah, not... she she was a big traveler through her whole mm-hmm. life. She actually wrote some um, some travel logs, I guess. Um, and she was fluent in French, German, and Italian, and lived a lot of her life in France. She actually went over there during World War One. Yeah, she lived in Paris during World War One. She was a big uh, supporter of the French war effort. The president of France appointed her Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, which was the country's highest award, I guess. And uh, she wanted the U.S. to get involved in the war. And in fact, the only time that she visited the U.S. after the war, like between World War One and her death in um, in 1937, was to accept an honorary doctorate from Yale. So I guess that's a pretty good reason to go back. Yeah, I, I would think so. Mm-hmm. Um. I was impressed that she would take like trips to the front lines during World War One. Like she would just hop in a car and just swing by the trenches. 
Yeah. How you? How's everyone doing? This seems cool. Oh, just everyone's dying. Great. See you Boy, later. Have they, have they invented tanks yet? Oh, not yet. Okay. <laughs> not yet. See you in a I'm few back. years. <laughs> Good luck, everyone. Um, as you said, she stayed. You know, the latter part of her life in France. That's where she actually wrote *The Age of Innocence*, uh, which I mentioned earlier, which won the 1921 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And she was the first woman to win the Mm -hmm. prize. Andrew, how many women do you think have won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction? Or I'll give you you a wider range. Uh, It is both the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and the earlier phase, which Wharton won when it was called the Pulitzer Prize for the novel. They expanded it in the 40s, I think, to include like short stories and stuff. How many women? So how many have won between then and today? Yes. Probably like a really slow, bad, sad number. So like 18. 31. 18 18 have won since it became the prize for fiction in like 48. Okay, that's cool. I I actually had no idea. So I was just throwing a number out there. (laughs) When I think 12 had won in the early days of the novel prize in the like 30 years that it was just Pulitzer for the for the novel which is a better ratio so i something got messed up (laughs) i don't know what happened there something happened um she did marry uh once she was engaged to be married to henry stevens in the 1880s uh but that abruptly ended and then a few years later she married edward teddy robbins wharton which is a great name. People had better names back then. People had like, way just, better names. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> uh, I would go see a funk band led by Rhinelander Jones and Teddy Robbins Wharton. Mm-hmm. I would go see them play. Rhinelander Jones and the the Teddy Jones Wharton band. What was the what was his name? I don't Teddy I, Robbins I even, Wharton. Yeah, Teddy group. Robbins Wharton band. <laughs> Teddy Robbins Wharton Street Band. Yeah. Uh, so the, initially, like he shared her love of travel, and they kind of lived a, a socialite or like a higher social class life. Um, I think that she was kind of in her writings reacting against socialite culture, so I won't say that she's socialite necessarily. I think but she he, she could react against it because she understood because she, it so yeah, well. Because yeah. she, yes, um, and they ended up divorcing. Uh, in 1913, after a long period of time where he was suffering from what I think we've determined is acute depression um, that seemed to get worse than than that. It doesn't um, seem that cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't even. I don't have a response to that. Uh, I can't believe that you don't have a response. <laughs> my response is just, just uh. okay she uh, uh yeah she she was married to him she divorced him after 28 years um to be with a journalist from the times yes correct i don't uh, do you recall his name i don't i don't have it down in my notes was that egerton winthrop it might be that was a good friend of hers i think that is that just was a really him. it's another good name i know <laughs> <laughs> i could have said anything and you would have been like yep i know yeah that sounds about right that sounds like a name that hails from this approximate time pimpled up Stephen lee lays what yeah no that's really that's a good one uh-huh i made that one up our nation's 32nd president <laughs> uh so yeah that's i mean there's more to be said, I think, about her other individual novels. Um, one of the things that we won't talk about as much on this week's show is is that critique of the upper class that she is kind of really well known for. Uh, this book is one of the few that takes place in a rural setting. Um, so there's that. I, I, I guess know. we'll have to do the Age of Innocence at some time, right? Like that's yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. probably her biggest. Like her biggest main work, right? Yeah, like we'll have to novel. we'll have to circle back to it. I um, when this one came across like my radar, I recognized the name instantly, so I didn't turn it away. Right. Yeah. Um. There are a couple couple fun facts about Edith Wharton that I that I found that we can we can talk about a little bit before we get into the book. Hit me. Um. Her first published work was a translation of a German poem. I think this was published when she was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. Fifteen. Yeah. Um. It earned her fifty dollars. Yes, which I guess making that those, cash, making yeah, that bank on that paper chase. Uh, she was, 
now of course this, this being like the the late 1800s women did not publish stuff and so this was published under the name of her friend's father and that guy encouraged her in her her desire to become more educated to write more like she she wasn't really into the whole like oh let's get me ready let's get me ready for marriage thing she did not she was not super into that Though she did abide, she abided by her mom's weird rule that she wouldn't read novels until she got married. Yeah, her mom said you can't read novels until you were married, and then I'm that just conjures up like, like she's she's in bed, she's she's got like an oil lamp under the covers, and she's (laughs) she's reading, (laughs) she's reading. I don't know, like Frankenstein or something. Uh And I just don't her- think I we don't have a concept. We've talked about it a couple of times on the show. Like we don't have a concept of that period in history where the novel was scandalous. You know? Yeah, I mean I guess maybe her mom was afraid she'd read about sex or something. I don't even know. Like I don't know what that what that yeah, rule was about. I don't, know. I, don't so, know. I mean she 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 wanted to be educated more than her family was willing to educate her, and so she read a bunch of books from her father's library, and she did that kind of stuff. But yeah, her mom didn't want her to read any novels until she was married because I mean, obviously. Duh. Um, I didn't. I mean, I know that I didn't read any novels until I was. So you married. were married. <laughs> <laughs> and she and she like complied with that. I guess that's the like if you're gonna rebel against the the values of your time, you have to have like one thing that you do so your parents can feel better about it. And I that suppose must, that must have been her one thing. Oh, but were you going to talk about when she published that poem, one of the reasons that she used an assumed name was that like her family's wishes or just views on the issue were that women's names didn't appear in print unless it was a notice about their birth, marriage, or death, like women of a certain <laughs> class. You were, you were to maintain propriety by not having anything noteworthy of print unless it was your birth your wedding or your death. So you're born, you sit in an empty room by yourself until you're married, and then you sit in your husband's empty room by yourself until you're dead. Yes. Please That's don't do job. anything notable. Um, she please <laughs> please do not become notorious in any way. Um in nineteen eight in nineteen oh two, this is the last thing. In nineteen oh two she designed uh the mount, which is oh, yeah. uh-huh. this elaborate house and grounds that uh that still stands today and was declared a national historic landmark in 1971 this is in massachusetts lennox massachusetts i think yep yeah and it's just it's a very expansive like house and and yard and it looks very nice and you can go you can go see it now i guess they get about 40,000 visitors a year now of course after being mentioned on our podcast that's going to go up by by several dozen numbers <laughs> <laughs> but did you know that it's haunted andrew Who's it haunted by? Is it her? Uh, no, I think just ghosts. I don't know. I don't. I'm not intimately <laughs> it has familiar. To be somebody's ghosts. It's not just Super Mario World in there. <laughs> Whose ghosts are they? Uh, you need to, you need to learn that and then come back to me and tell Wait, me more about no, these no, ghosts. No. But the phrase that Edith Wharton used in describing her her uh. Like supernatural contact was that in her childhood she was haunted by formless horrors and that she maintained contact with them throughout her life. So it is possible that the ghosts followed her there. Yes. Okay. She was, no, she was talking about it as if it were ghosts. Yes. All right. No, I I know I said that was the last thing. This is actually the last thing is she met F. Scott Fitzgerald and she thought he was boring. Um, she's she said of that meeting. Now, apparently, there there's a short article in uh, in the Independent, I think, mm-hmm. about their meeting. Okay. Um, and she is she has written about it that it was one of the better known failed encounters in the American literary annals, and uh, and her diary entry about the meeting just says to T Teddy Chandler and Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist, awful. Oh no. <laughs> Because like, I guess he got too drunk and he told a boring story, and so she thought it was awful. And that's like, that's everybody's 
nightmare encounter with a celebrity, right? Like, oh, like no. what you what you want to happen is you want them to think you're interesting, and then you become best buds, and then you're just over at like Paul F. Tompkins' house, like hanging out. <laughs> what if you went and hung out with Paul F. Tompkins, and then later that day he tweeted, he was like, "Yo, that book guy's a doofus." Oh God! Oh, that book guy. He, he <laughs> you can't even you can't even handle this he, fictional he has encounter. A, he has him. a hit podcast, I guess, so he would have a lot of opinions about about our ability to podcast. You'd go up there know. and you'd be like, "Oh, I've been trying to keep up with the Tompkinses," and he'd be like, "Sick Wharton reference, bro." Let me yeah, tweet about it, and then he'd kick you into a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how that would work. All right, Ethan Frome, tell me more about this guy. Well, first, Andrew, could we tell our listeners that we are doing a live show at the end of August, if they don't know already, in Philadelphia? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if we can tell them. All right. Well, if we were going to, <laughs> no. if we I were might tell them we would we would tell them that it was on uh, August 29th at 2 p.m. And it's happening at the Tattooed Mom on South Street. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, South, Phil- in- South, South Street in South Philadelphia. Yeah, South everybody Street. come come get some water and party ice. at the no, Tattooed Mom. <laughs> come get some water ice. No, it's not just water ice. You can just get water. You can just get water. Come on down to South Street. It's just north of Pashyunk. Come on down to the Tattooed Moms. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how to say Ghost at a Watchman in a Philly accent, but that's the book that we're going to talk about. Yeah, so. we will be reading Ghost at a Watchman by Harper Lee. It's going to be a great discussion. It's not ticketed, of, but like, come on down. Let us know if you think you're coming. We've got some people emailing us already, like double checking the time and stuff like that. If we had like a f- vague head count coming in, that would be super helpful. Uh, yeah, because the the room I think they said will like hold fifty. 50 now, I personally, 60, yeah. if if the if the fire marshal is not involved in this live <laughs> show in some way, I will consider it a personal failure. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, we would say like get there like maybe half an hour early. There are going to be a lot of other shows there. This is part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. You can Correct. find their website at phillypodfest.com, even though I don't think that they have updated with their schedule or anything. No, just quite it's yet. It's fine. It's fine. Um, Craig, we also we have, we have some other like housekeeping things to do. Uh, we've got a... <laughs> I might want to edit this down a little bit. Do you have the birthday thing ready? You want to do that? We could do the birthday thing. Yeah, that's fine. Let's just do a bunch of housekeeping stuff in the middle here. In the middle. Let's just mix it up. Let's go as long as we in can ca- well, in case actually pe- talking about the book. In case people don't listen all the way to the end when okay. we talk about the book. So uh, Abigail wrote in. She's uh, been a listener for a while and has written in to us at overduepod at gmail.com before. Uh, said some nice things about the show. She wanted to write in and say that she had turned her sister Cameron onto the show and that they were enjoying the Goblin Fingers discussion from our To the Lighthouse episode, uh, and that they text back and forth like quotes from the show, which is like an absurdly high compliment for Andrew and I, because we do that for podcasts that we like. People tweet quotes and like put quotes on our Facebook wall and stuff, and I would say... 19 times out of 20 we do have we have no memory of saying these things (laughs) which is awesome because we get to relive them and and we get to see that you guys are enjoying the nonsense that we spew um (laughs) uh abby wrote us to to ask uh if we would wish cameron a happy birthday uh it was her birthday only a couple days ago she turned uh, 29, I think, which is a great age. It's right around where Andrew and I are. It's a pretty cool age. And it's uh, where so I happy- am. You you wouldn't know anything about it. I'm almost there. You wouldn't understand. I'm almost there. All right, Mr. Ha- 28 year old. Well, happy birthday, Cameron. From a 20 year old and a 29 year old. Uh, maybe if we ever come down uh to the Carolinas, you can come see us live. Who knows? Yeah. Or you could come to Philadelphia. Listen, we can we can make this happen. You you have your people call our people. <laughs> that sounds good. Andrew, should we just talk about this book? Um, are you ready to talk about this book? 
25-ish uh, minutes into the show. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Ethan Frome. All right, Ethan Frome. Now, is this about a guy called Ethan Frome? Funny you should ask, because it starts with a guy who is not Ethan Frome. What's Didn't see that coming, did you? I don't know what I his didn't. name is. He's an unnamed narrator. So he's like that go- He's a ghost. Yeah, he's a formless horror. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, it takes place in the fictional town of Starkfield, Massachusetts, somewhere around the turn of the century, I think the 19 aughts or so. And the unnamed narrator is like an engineer working up in the Starkfield area. He's crashing with some people in the small town. And like the first or second page of the book, he is talking about seeing Ethan Frome like at the post office. And it is the most, he describes him as the most striking figure in Starkfield. I had a weird cognitive issue here where, first of all, I didn't know that the narrator was a man at this point. I did not know which way the gender had gone. Okay. Because right. the it's author a, is a female. The author is a female. The book is in first person. And at this point in time, it's in first person. And all I know is that the narrator thinks that Ethan is the most striking figure in Starkfield. And then two sentences later, I see this sentence. Uh, There was something bleak and unapproachable in his face, and he was so stiffened and grizzled that I took him for an old man and was surprised to hear that he was not more than 52. So that is your first look at Ethan Frome. He's got a limp. He's not well. So the first... In encounter with him, I went. I had like this whiplash where for a second I was like, "Ooh, this is a story about this like man that we met, and he's you know going to be uh, like a mysterious, handsome stranger or something." And it turns out, no, he's like the town Boo Radley, who like no one knows what's going on <laughs> in his house. He gets like one envelope a day, and. Sometimes there's like it's related to medicine and everyone knows that his wife is sickly like that's and 20 years ago he was involved in what everyone calls a smash up. But no one wants a smash up now is that like a successful song that's been combined with another song to make like a good track for the dance floor or is is that something else? No. So people this is you know people want to gossip but they don't want to gossip too hard. So they're being careful with what they're saying, and all they'll tell our unnamed narrator is that, you know, 20 years ago, uh, Ethan was involved in an accident, and that's why he has a limp and feels really wizened for 52. Okay. And no one really knows what's going on with him. I guess for then, 52 might have been a little wizened anyway. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I should have said that a smash-up was a a smash-mouth mash-up. Go on. <laughs> There's the, re- the listeners can't hear the face that you're making. <laughs> um, so the narrator sets out to learn about Ethan. There's no like pretense other than curiosity. This whole narrator is a frame framing device for the actual story of Ethan Frome. Um, so under like some weird pretense the narrator ends up hiring Ethan to like drive him around for a week because he's got to go to this factory every day. And Ethan knows the snowy roads really well and he could use some money, I guess. So why don't you pay him? And then there's like a nasty storm and the narrator ends up at Ethan Frome's house, which no one has been to ever in the past like 20 years. And Ethan lays his story out for the narrator. Like... Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the story is like third person, uh, not not directly inside Ethan's mind, but that that kind of like over the shoulder, omniscient third person narrator. If that makes okay. sense, yeah. Um, so Ethan's got a wife named Zenobia. <laughs> God, so many names in this podcast. So many awesome names. It's uh, making me feel really bad about being named Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> My name is just like a knockoff of Greg. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, dime store Greg. Dime store Greg. It's <laughs> actually my my street name. <laughs> uh, 
uh, Zenobia's nickname is Xena. That's not awesome at all. Uh, no, that's that's barely <laughs> radical in the least. So the story for Ethan, his backstory, is that you know in his early twenties he went away and got educated and like went to university or whatever. But then his father passed away and his mother was ill, so he had to return to the family farm. And this is not like I know that this happens to people. I feel like it's not as common an occurrence now as it used to be, just because of the medical establishment being what it is. Mm-hmm. Though the way that medical bills are now, I'm sure that there are plenty of similar scenarios. You need to leave your cat alone. You are getting distracted. He is on top of the fridge and he's going to knock some boxes of cereal off and it's going to make a really loud noise. That's fine. Okay, um, now I've already brought him into the show now. So if he continues to add and distract you from the glory that is Ethan Frome. I'm just I'm trying to make him not make noise and by calling attention to it you have made more noise than he ever could have. But I so also know that you're not listening to me cuz you're watching your cat. I'm listening to you. Mm. We're talking about he had to go back to the family farm and help out. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right. Swish. <laughs> From downtown. (laughs) Uh, So the way that Ethan ended up marrying Xena in the first place was she was taking care of his mother as his mother was dying. And uh, Xena's always been a little sickly herself. She has pains and spasms and, you know, spells. um, What people people in town call troubles. Okay. Like, that's like you just peep some people have troubles now every once in a while someone their troubles escalate to complications okay and that's when things are serious but most of her life Zena's had troubles and uh she you know does a really good job taking care of ethan's mom but ethan's mom passes anyway and they kind of end up getting married just because like there's not like a huge romance or anything um it just happens Okay, but at the start of Ethan's story, here's here's the deal. A year ago, Ethan is 28 at this point, right? This is around okay. the time of that smash up that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. A year before that, uh, his wife's cousin, Zena's cousin Maddie, came to live with them. As she's, you know, I think 18 or 19, maybe 21. I don't know. An old, an old maid. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, Zena is 35 and Ethan is 28 just for reference and uh, she's with them because like her dad got into some nefarious nonsense and ruined the family money and no one wanted to take her in and Zena's kind of sick all the time so she can't help with the farm and the housework so they let Maddie stay with them and what do you think's happening Andrew Ethan kind of likes Maddie Okay. Kinda, he kind of digs her. And you're not really sure for a good long time in the story whether or not Maddie is into it. If that makes sense. I am sure that he ignores it and does not act on anything. That's my guess. Great. Let's stop the podcast right here. Okay. <laughs> the end. The story's if you want to know more about our show, you can email <laughs> us at overduepod at gmail.com. So it starts with this like scenario where he's like outside of a dance hall. It's winter because apparently it's always winter in Starkfield. And <laughs> it's and he's like waiting for her to walk her home. Like every she every once in a while she has a night off, she'll go, she's young, she'll party, and then like Ethan will walk her home just to keep her safe. And there's this scenario where she's like dancing with this other guy and Ethan's like peering in the window like a creeper and like kind of jealous about it jealous 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 uh and she comes out with that guy and he's like oh let me take you home in my cutter which i think is like a some sort of fancy horse sled i'm not sure i want to say it's just a horse and buggy with lightning bolts painted on the side (laughs) but (laughs) oh man what if you had like a drifting horse and buggy what would that even be Check out my horse that can drift. It's from Japan. I'm trying to think of a good pun name for like a Fast and the Furious movie with horses, but I can't. I can't do it. It's okay. Um, so 
But she doesn't go home with that guy with the cutter. She ends up going back to the hall and meets up with Ethan and they walk home. And so you get the sense that Maddie does, at the very least, think Ethan is like a cool dude. Like, okay. She likes him well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ethan is like really into her because she's curious about the world. Like she's she's not like super book learned, but she is interested in those types of things. Okay. He there. I want to give you a quote about this. And one, I mean, one assumes she's not super book learned because the culture at the time did not want women to be book learned. Well, it's just well specifically, she just hasn't had the opportunity. Like her, her yeah, yeah, yeah. Her family may have had the means, but her dad like gambled it all away or something. Um, good job, dad. Yeah, good job, dad. Uh, so Ethan says of Maddie, one of the reasons that he really likes her. Quote. Then he learned that one other spirit had trembled with the same touch of wonder about the world. That at his side, living under his roof and eating his bread, was a creature to whom he could say, That's Orion down yonder. The big fellow to the right is Idabaron. And the bunch of little ones, like bees swarming, they're the Pleiades. He's, he's, it's like the stars. Like there's something mm-hmm. like wonderfully uh, early tropish about this, right? We talk about that a lot, where it's like, you the way that the author quickly shows you that someone is interested in learning and marvels at the universe is that they like look up at the stars and romance <laughs> about all the names, you know? Do you see that every, one? Every eighteen year old between <laughs> like the dawn of time and now has tried to come up with some some like trite observation about the stars in an attempt to seem deep and impress a member of the opposite sex. Uh-huh. Like I've been there, you've been there, we've all been there. <laughs> As there was like a five year stretch where it just devolved into buying people stars for their birthday. Like, oh, they named this distant star like Angela for you, Angela. So you're you're saying that you uh you would not be happy to get a star for your birthday? I'm not I'm not asking for any specific reason. Well, crap. It, I'm not just I'm just Where asking. is the star? Like where is okay, say you were buying me a star for my birthday. Where would it be? Cuz I don't um, want no like dumb star. I don't want like a <laughs> dwarf star. I I it would don't be one I of the one of the ones no next to that star. Next to that Kepler planet, like that planet that might be like Earth. Oh yes, please. Life like two. prime prime real estate. Yeah, life two, the star. Yeah. Okay. I would I would totally Earth, like that. Earth two, the sequel. <laughs> Maybe we won't ruin it this time. That's, that's yeah, probably remains to be seen. The rest of this book plays out like a mix between like a really taut character drama and a rom-com i think (laughs) okay (laughs) so you get the sense that they're into it you also get the sense that xena knows what's up like there's a part where uh xena comments on the fact that since maddie moved in ethan started shaving every day like and it's just one of those things where he says like i guess i didn't realize i was shaving every day and now I do. Weird, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he got this exfoliating face wash that he had never had before. What is this? You, first you tried all that beard softener, and now you just shaved it all away. What's going on, Ethan? Beard softener. As as a man with a beard, tell me like, how many beard products are legit and how many are just trying to squeeze money out of guys with beards um 80 percent of them are trying to squeeze money out of guys with beards okay. i think some beers beard softeners are sort of a thing especially for guys like me who keep their beards sort of short i don't I know. use do you, one do you like oil your beard no you i beard do oil? not i do right. not have beard oil this conversation is getting weird it's weird you, me no, I just i just want to know because i can't grow one so i'm trying to live vicariously oh, through, through my you beard. yes i just want to know if there's any like birds bees products that you rub in your beard every Ew. day <laughs> okay. no right. i can't even handle like chapstick i don't even want to put stuff in my beard okay other than like soap to keep it clean yeah of course 
like you do. Anyway, this book. Gotta keep the cornflakes out. You gotta keep those cornflakes. <laughs> a lady in a Starbucks this morning pointed out to me that I had some cheese on my beard. <laughs> <laughs> I was like rushing from place to place. I had about 10 minutes. I sat down to eat a sausage, egg, and cheese. And I was just sitting there chomping on it, like reading Twitter or whatever. And she goes, excuse me, sir, you've got, you've got a little, and then I, I got it. I said, thank you. And she said, I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom and you're about my son's age. <laughs> All right. All right. Monster face. All right. Herman monster. That's what I'm going to call you now. It wasn't even a lot. She like really spotted it. <laughs> She's a good mom, I think. Um, so here's where it goes into indie film rom-com town. Xena leaves the the town to go see another doctor. Uh, Ethan at multiple times says that she's real experienced at doctoring, <laughs> which means sure. that she's always getting a second or third or fourth opinion and like testing out the new medicines for her things. I think it's like kind of the equivalent of spending your whole day on WebMD, which I imagine if you had a chronic condition, you would totally do because like you're constantly looking for anything that will help. Um. And so she leaves and Ethan's got like a day where he's like, oh man, I'm going to be with Maddie. This is going to be great. Maybe I can tell her that I like her a lot. Uh, he doesn't. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, he doesn't like, he he's, has it's troubles. It's not like my wife's going to come back from the doctor. I know, I know. <laughs> he's got He's got issues with, with his life with Xena because the way that she just deals with her pain means that she is not as pleasant to him as he would like. Like he doesn't have, he has a hard time having sympathy for her, but she also like invited this girl into the house and then is like, uh, this is bad. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's, there's a lot of gray and you know, you get the sense that Wharton's not happy with any of these people. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so while Xena is away, uh, Maddie and uh, Ethan goes off to to like get fifty dot like a fifty dollar cash advance, which was like his reason for not taking Zena to the train himself. And then he totally can't, so that lie was dumb. And then he comes back, and Maddie's made this special dinner for him, and they're gonna have dinner together. It's gonna be really nice. And she uses Zena's like special pickle dish, which lives on the top shelf of the cabinet, and no one ever touches it. Uh, and it was like given to her, her as a wedding present or something. And while they're having dinner, like they remark and joke about the fact that the cat is like sitting in Zena's chair, and it made you just look at your cat. That was funny. I was looking for him. I don't know where he is. <laughs> I lost sight of him. Uh, the cat is like sitting on Zena's chair, like almost taking her place. And how weird is that? And they have a moment where they both reach for the milk jug. And they touch this, hands. This is a classic Nora Ephron kind I of know. thing that's going on. And then, like, they both touch hands, and it, like, causes a stir, and then the cat freaks out and knocks the pickle dish off the table and breaks it. And the whole scene explodes like the pickle dish. And <laughs> then we go in... It's a, it's a metaphor. Then we go into, like, Ben Stiller rom-com mode, and Ethan's like, oh, well, I got this. I got a great plan. Don't worry. Even though it's her like prized pickle dish that she never uses, I'll just pick up all the pieces and I'll put them on the top shelf like next to each other as if they weren't broken. And then I'll go get some glue tomorrow. Don't worry about it. I got this. Totally fine. Right? Okay. Okay. That seems, that seems fine. <sighs> Not really. Um, so then the next day he like leaves to go get the glue and he's having a lot of trouble and he's like really bossing people around to get this glue and everyone's like, why are you freaking out about this glue? It's totally How fine. How hard is it to get glue though? There's like two or three shops and like the one didn't have any and they were like, oh, we'll get another shipment in tomorrow because we're in rural Massachusetts. And he's like, no, I need it today. I need the glue. <laughs> Isn't this place a geographical oddity? Yes. Two weeks, for, two weeks from everywhere. <laughs> and... When he gets back from his glue errand, Xena's back. She's back early. Oh, no. She got bad news from the doctor. She's not feeling well. Basically, she's moved from troubled to complicated. And 
Uh, she had to change her status on Facebook. And the doctor says that she needs a live-in girl. And so her plan is to send Maddie away. You can imagine how Ethan feels about that. Bad. I bet it's bad. Pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And also they need to hire this new girl and Xena's already basically ordered her. Like she's coming on the train tomorrow. In a crate. Yeah. And <laughs> With Ethan, air holes and Ethan's like, Ethan tries to invoke the economic argument and be like, you, we can't do that. We, we're totally strapped for cash. Like I'm the only person that works on this farm. We make no money. And she goes, well, didn't just yesterday you told me you were going to go get $50 from Nathan or whatever. He's like, ah, oh, crap. Uh, no. I spent it. I spent it. I kind of spent it at the glue store. <laughs> oh. It's not. It's not important why I need a glue, but you just need to understand that I needed it, and now the money's gone. It's. It's like the. It's basically the crawl space episode of Breaking Bad. That's <laughs> really what it is. All the money's gone. I spent you went it. down there to get the fifty dollars, and then it was gone. It was just a gone. bunch of glue. <laughs> So they go down to dinner, and Zena's not eating because she's not feeling well. And Maddie and uh, Ethan are talking, and Ethan just like tries to kiss her, and then blurts out that Zena's going to send Maddie away. Zena's like bursts in the room like the Kool Aid Man. Is like, I think I will have some dinner. I just caught you talking about my plan. Oh sits, yeah, and she sits down, and after dinner, and critic after criticizing Maddie's food, she. Of course. Says that she needs some, like, digestive medicine. The special kind that she only keeps in, like, her secret spot, which, lo and behold, is by the pickle dish. Okay, I have two guesses as to she either gets poison or glue. No, she gets neither. No, but she she discovers the pickle dish. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. And she flips out, and no one's happy, of course. And, it doesn't uh, sound like anybody was really happy before <laughs> before the whole thing happened. <laughs> and there's this weird scene that I didn't really like until later because it felt a little too on the nose, where he like spends the night in his study, like thinking about how he could elope with Maddie, but then there would be no money for her to for Zena to run the farm, and then he's like. He finds this brochure where he's like, I could run away with her and we'll go west. Like, just wherever that means, we'll just go west. And he finds this brochure that, like, is all the prices to go west and it's all too expensive. <laughs> he's like, well, I guess I'm stuck. I guess I'm just stuck here. As as if it, Which was ironic because he couldn't get any glue before. <laughs> oh, get it? <laughs> okay. Get it? Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Don't you think? A little too ironic yeah i really do think uh it's like ten thousand spoons when all you need is some glue <laughs> uh so then what happens next is the penultimate scene the smash up so the whole book ethan has talked occasionally about promising maddie that they would go coasting now this means that they're going to go sledding on like a hill full of snow right okay. and they decide on the way to the train that he's taking her to when she's leaving them that they're going to stop they're going to get out talk about their feelings they're going to kiss a little bit they are going to go coasting there's this sled under a tree they're going to go coasting it's going to be great they go they have a good time they go down the hill they walk back up the top and they smooch a bit more and they say we can't live apart this will never work we can't do this and so Maddie says, hey, remember that time we went down the hill two seconds ago and we almost hit that tree? This time, let's hit the tree. Let's just, ro- let's. It's we can't bear to live apart from one another. Let's just drive right into that tree. And then our ghosts can chill together yep. forever. Formless, okay. The formless horror of our love will haunt the mount forever. And <laughs> so they go for it. It's really weird. They go for it. And right as he's about to crash into the tree, Ethan like sees a vision of his wife's face and it freaks him out and he almost messes up and like steers away from the tree and then corrects his course and they crash anyway, but neither of them die. Of course, his leg gets messed up and 
the next thing that happens in the book is they go back to the frame narrative. The narrator is sitting in the living room here in the end of the story. And he hears this like complaining woman speaking from another room. And you're led to believe that that's Zena. Well, lo and behold, he walks in and it's Maddie. And she's been there the whole time. She was partially paralyzed by the crash. They've been taking care of her ever since. And she's basically become what Zena was. This kind of, you know, dependent in all manner of speaking woman. Zena's gotten a little bit more strength so that she can take care of both Maddie and Zena. Maddie and Ethan. And Ethan and Maddie got their wish to stay together until they die. Womp, 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 womp. <laughs> uh, and what? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a cool book because, who like, do you, who can you like in this book? Because no everybody one. seems dumb and terrible. No one. What's interesting is that, like, you kind of Ethan is not an unlikable person. It's just his actions are objectively bad. Yeah, like, they're really stupid. The the situation stacked against him is one that is pitiable and moving. Like his the situation that brought him to the life at the farm that he has makes sense. And there's only like one or two people in the town that actually feel for him in that scenario. And yeah. there's like an there's a scene where he tries to borrow money from them so that he can elope with Maddie. And he doesn't get that far because the woman, Mrs. Hale, is like, hey, I'm really sorry about your life, basically. <laughs> like, I really understand that it's been hard for you. And Ethan, you know, in that moment realizes that the only people in town who care about him are would get swindled. And he doesn't want to do that. Um, oh, well, what a nice feller. What a nice feller. So one of the things about kind of a feminist reading of this book, because, like, obviously Maddie and Zena don't really get a good go <laughs> in this book. Zena uh, is portrayed as, like, this sickly harpy that just ruins his life and keeps him from doing his dreams. Right. And Maddie is... A girl who has no life other than this farm that she's bad at. And she's really bad at household things. And how will she ever get married? And she's really... And she's a home wrecker or whatever she, yeah, and stereotype she, you want to apply. Yeah. Just exists in the story to be kind of an object of Ethan's affection. Um, and then she, you know, is subjected to this tragedy and ends up becoming the same like spinster archetype that is Xena and I think it's one of those situations where you read a book and you're like ah I don't like that and that's the point does that make sense like there there's a there's a there's a way to read some fiction and genres of fiction where that you're t the issue you're talking about is underrepresentation of characters or you know proper treatment of types of characters but this is really a social critique of the opportunities afforded or actually not afforded to women at this time and in this type of community yeah um you know i think wharton is showing how maddie's become xenas because they are dependent on men for their livelihood and right because i mean marriage. it sounds like it sounds like neither of them really have a whole lot of say in, in what's going on at all like ethan is the only one who's really in, like literally and figuratively in the driver's seat for these relationships like he's, he's yeah, the only true. one yeah he's the only one that can can that can make the shot and it's, it's yeah it's weird like maddie talks about she had a job at like a store like as a clerk and she couldn't hack it like it physically upset her like being on her feet all day and things like that so there's just this portrait of both of these women being kind of unfit for the world around them mm -hmm. um which seems kind of part of a, of a larger critique um the other thing that we didn't really talk about is the fact that the winter and the setting seem to be really important to who these people are and how trapped they are how stuck like glue they are you might say 
Um, <laughs> I would say that, except nobody can find any glue in this in this no horse town. Uh, so, in one of the early descriptions of Ethan, uh, this is what the narrator says: He seemed a part of the mute, melancholy landscape, an incarnation of its frozen woe, with all that was warm and sentient in him fast bound below the surface. But there was nothing unfriendly in his silence. I simply felt that he lived in a depth of moral isolation too remote for casual access uh, and likens it to the cold Starkfield winters. So there's this sense that kind of in the naturalist tradition, I think uh, Wharton is exploring how a setting like this creates people who live this way. Mm -hmm. Um, That like part of... It's one of those things where this this turn of the century industrial revolution era of writing uh kind of can sometimes feel like everyone's chasing like an economic MacGuffin. Like, oh I there's my here's the dowry, here's the farm money, here's this thing. And Wharton, at least in this story, I feel like does a really good job of lend, lending that real stakes and not doing it in a way that I'm like, Oh yeah, you gotta get the farm money like the farm money is a thing to be worried about. You know, <laughs> you know that thing where like it can very easily feel like a cliche or a really convenient device for it to be about something like that. Sure. Does that make sense? And do you have more examples of, of that? I don't, I feel like in, in Ibsen, it's something where it, it makes more sense because his, economic woes or his like books that people fight over often carry symbolic weight but in this book the weight is the money is just the money like all the symbolism is in the setting rather than like the plot device okay so i don't know that's what i'm feeling about that i it's one of those things where it's like and this happens today like people get sunk into debt on property or student loan stuff or whatever it is. And I was impressed at Wharton's ability to spin a good yarn and use those concerns as like good motivating factors that don't just feel like convenient. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I forgot to ask you when I was talking about the winter thing, what you hate the most about winter because that's, a, that's totally winter. a thing that, that weighs on these characters and is a huge part of the setting. Like, there's a gravestone on from... There's not a gravestone, like a graveyard of the family gravestones on the Frome farm. And that kind of, like, is this specter of death hanging over all of them because Ethan is talking about how he wants to spend the rest of his life with Maddie, which means until they die. Um, and it all kind of feeds into this wintry oppression and that February doldrums is certainly a thing that you and I have talked about before. What do you like least about winter? I think, I mean, you know, it it sucks to be cold. It sucks to deal with the weather, like like all that stuff. I think my least favorite thing is that, like, with our friend group, we have to make plans pretty far in advance because we're all, like, scattered everywhere geographically and we all have jobs that we're pretty invested in and it's just it's hard to do things on a whim and so you can start scheduling things like 3 to 6 months in advance sometimes yes and with winter up here in the northeast at least like the weather doesn't care how far in advance you try to plan this stuff out no so, it does not yeah like you you can you can try and do this stuff but it decides to snow like 10 inches on the day that you decided to do it. And it just doesn't happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Like, I, I guess at the root of that is like a kind of powerlessness that I think mm-hmm. that is, that is goes, not part I think, of I other think, seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think it goes with a lot of like weather, weather events or natural disasters or stuff like, like the things that, <laughs> that really drive home to us, like, how little nature cares about us and how quickly it can just wreck our entire situation yeah. if it wants to. Oh, totally. Well, and and in the context of this book, how it just dictates how you need to live your life. Yeah. You know, we're we're we live in a time now where we're 
messing with nature as often as she's messing with us and it seems like she's getting a little pissed about that yeah like we've 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 developed these technologies that allow us to live pretty much the same way regardless of of what's happening you know aside from like the extreme outliers so it can be it can be 95 degrees outside or it can be 15 degrees outside but in my apartment it can feel pretty much the same the whole year so Ethan Frome's pretty good. I don't feel like I talked as much about why I liked it. Um, I just, I liked the plotting of it. I liked how the things like the pickle dish and the money and the glue scenario and just all the kind of stuff that we riffed on felt organically delivered. Like it wasn't, it didn't feel like too much at the time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it all felt like it paid off like a really sad Seinfeld episode. (laughs) (laughs) Like it all came together. Every you know, nothing was wasted. It was a pretty lean tale in that. And there's a freeze frame right at the end that just brought the whole book together. You're lonely. Die alone. Hey Craig, hey, hey Craig. The glue store called. They're all out of glue. Uh, I think I did want more of Maddie and Zena's like actual inner mind. That was one thing that is like it makes the story what it is. But I certainly there were parts in the book where I was like, "What the heck does Maddie think about this stuff?" She he's like, "There's one scene where she's knitting something and he is like fondling the other end of it and ends up like kissing the fabric she's knitting because he can't kiss her." Okay, weirdo. And I don't know what she thinks about that. I mean, I think I think that's part of the... It, it seems like it plays into the rest of the thing. Like, it's not important what she thinks about it because that's not what the book is about. Yeah, and their their connection is kind of taken for granted. Like, yeah. It's one of those stories where it doesn't work unless they're into each other. So they're into each other. Bing, bang, boom. Read the rest of this story. Yeah. Um, Which it does feel like it's told as like, it's a tale, not a novel, which is actually a thing that Wharton, I think, has said about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a, it has some, not allegorical things, but the the way it delivers what message it is delivering kind of feels a little cleaner than your average novel, a little blunter, sure. perhaps. Uh, so that's that book. You should probably go read it. It's not very long. It's pretty cool. <laughs> probably. Um, if you're looking for some Edith Wharton, how about and you that? don't want to you don't want to commit to the Age of Innocence. Yeah, I don't want to yet. I'm not that innocent. Okay, Brittany. Um, yeah, if you want yeah, to, if yeah. You, if you want to email us about, if you want to email us about glue, I don't know. You can do it at overduepod at gmail dot com. <laughs> you can also hit us up at twitter dot com slash overduepod. Or Facebook.com slash OverduePod. Craig, I believe we had a pretty good week on Twitter. Do you have a list of people that we you We had wanna... a banner week for fan interaction in general. Everyone was stepping up their game. Eric let me know that the last episode we did, My Side of the Mountain, was in fact the first time I mentioned my engagement on air. So that was cool. Yay! Uh, Amelia wrote us an awesome email asking if we were doing... Uh, go set a watchman because she was confused and it's the live show go check it out august 29th 2 p.m tattoo mom philadelphia uh, amy wrote in about that show mona wrote in about a movie called the doctor which you should go watch if you thought was if you thought wit was cool uh we already talked about abigail and her birthday sister uh <laughs> also people who reached out to us this week on twitter and facebook include aubrey alex fritz margaret Catherine, rebecca jd kella dickinson Michael Malati, Angela, who is not the worst, James Vickers, Sonia, Monica, Stephanie, Cassie, Lee, Christian, Renee, who is pumping quotes at us, Meigs, Ronald, Rachel, Laura, Jillian, Jess, Cleo, Alana, The Bold Signals Podcast, Danielle, and people are hitting up our Patreon. Andrew, what is that? Our Patreon, (laughs) you can find it at patreon.com slash overdupod. It's uh, basically a way for people who like us and who want to support us to pledge a certain amount of money to us per month. Um, and we use that money to pay for books, to pay for hosting, to pay for all manner of things. 
Um, so we hit our last stretch goal in May, I think, um, for, for certain, like when we hit certain amounts of money per month, we have pledged to do certain things. So at $150 a month, we started recording bonus episodes. We've recorded three. Um, if you've not heard our bonus episode from July, that was, uh, my side of the mountain by, uh, Gene Craighead George, uh, that is up and available for everybody to listen to. So you should hit up our uh, site, our iTunes feed, whatever, and go listen to that. Um, our next stretch goal is at $250 per month, which we are perilously close to. And we, I guess, said that we would open up a merch store when that <laughs> happened. And I like when we opened it, I'm not sure. I, th- I thought that if it, if we did hit that amount, that it would be so far in the future that Craig would be dead. <laughs> I'm going to live forever, but I figured Craig would have died of something by now, but it hasn't happened. So once we hit $250 a month, I mean, we're not going to open the store like the same day, but were you still going to open the store. What were you going to sell my stuff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Rip Craig. I'm just, <laughs> anyway, we, we are, we're starting to design things and think about the kind of the kinds of things that we would like to offer. I think we might be um, contacting some um, artists and designers. So if you happen to do that and you're interested in doing that work for us, of course we pay you money. You should hit us up at our, at our email address. But yeah, all sorts of promises on air. Uh, what? Hold us. To- this is all stuff we've talked about. I know. Hold us to our merch store promises. Head on over to patreon.com slash overdue pod. Andrew mentioned our website earlier. We got to wrap this up. We've been going along. Overduepodcast.com. Overduepodcast.com is the website. You can find old episodes, Amazon links for the books, the Patreon thing, the Facebook and Twitter, whatever, the iTunes page. We've been getting new review, uh, new ratings recently. Still no there's like a mystery review i don't know what's going on somebody wrote in about that this week um go, go give us a review it's super awesome if you're liking the show it helps other we people. like we like ratings too but we reviews. we depend on the praise of strangers to like feel good about it's, ourselves and so. we got a lot of it this <laughs> week so thank you very much like there's a long month for both andrew and i this summer this july and uh you guys have really helped carry us through so I don't think I missed anything else. We're on Stitcher, etc. Andrew, you do another show. It's called TV something. It's called Appointment TV. <laughs> I do it with sometime overdue guest Margaret H. Willison and our friend Catherine Van Arendonk. And we talk about the TV that you think is important enough to watch. Uh, right now we're doing this thing called TV Book Club. We're watching this buddy cop show called Terriers, which I had never heard of and has like the worst name I've ever heard, but is actually pretty good. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one of the things we were doing. Uh, you can find out more about that at atvpodcast.com. Uh, next week for overdue, I am reading a book called then we came to the end by Joshua Ferris. Um, I'm like a quarter of the way through right now. I can say that it is the most accurate depiction of like upper middle class office worker on we that I have ever read. Ooh. All right. Yeah. yeah. So that's going to be fun. Let's just make a bunch of office space references next week. All right. Um, everybody get a stapler, I guess. Fill out those TPS reports. Feels and, good to be a gangster. And kill a printer and try to be happy or something. 